Thank you very much. So we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 21 together. This is a very weird passage, uh, and it's quite disturbing. In today's story, it raises a question of responsibility and punishment. And we'll actually see seven men die for the sin of their father. And in our day, that feels weird, not even just weird wrong. You know, because we live in a very individualistic society, and we have such an emphasis on personal freedom and, and autonomy, that for these seven sons to die for something their father had done just feels wrong. And it, it, it actually is a lot more relevant than we realize. These men had no choice as to what family they were born into. It turns out their family was cursed, and neither do we. And it turns out ours is as well, right? It's actually a lot, sim- uh, we are a lot more, uh, a lot more relevance here than we would like to think the way our Western mind is. But let's have a read of the passage and you'll see what I mean. 2 Samuel 21, 1 to 14, we're going to read. <clears throat> says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalethite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord." And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish's father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. 
So this was obviously something very serious because God insisted on bringing up this old sin that Saul had done. God insisted it had to be dealt with. And, and Saul was long dead at this point. But it was, it, it was so serious because Saul wasn't just anybody. He was the king of Israel. And how he had treated these Gibeonites had seriously affected the reputation of God. Because this passage tells us that these Gibeonites were not Jews. They did not really belong in the land. They were foreigners. They were an ethnic minority group incorporated into the nation of Israel. Originally, they were meant to be driven out of the land. But in Joshua chapter 9, you can read Joshua chapter 9, and it shows you how these Gibeonites deceived Joshua and the Israelite army into thinking they had come from afar. And Israel ended up making a peace treaty with the Gibeonites. And crucially, Israel guaranteed their continued safety in the land, and they made a covenant with them in the name of the Lord their God. This is the important thing. So Israel had made a covenant with these Gibeonites in the name of God to keep them safe. But despite that covenant, despite that promise, that peace treaty, Saul in his nationalistic zeal had launched a genocide against this ethnic minority group because they were not Israelites. He had attempted an ethnic cleansing of the nation, right? And God was very offended. God loves the ethnic minorities of the world. Many people, even in our day, have faced violence, abuse, and death because they are a minority. That's the only reason, because they don't quite fit in in the nation in which they live. And God hasn't got over any of those crimes. He didn't get over Saul's crime, and he hasn't got over any of those ones either. God doesn't forget about things after a few years. Oh, well, Saul's dead. Nothing we can do. God is outside time. His demand for justice is just as strong a thousand years after that crime was done as it was on the day that that crime was done. And, and justice will be done on the day of judgment. God will make sure justice is done for every person who is oppressed throughout this whole world. But he couldn't wait for the day of judgment in this particular case. Something had to be done right then. It couldn't wait because the perpetrator was the king of Israel. And the Gibeonites actually call him Saul, the chosen of the Lord. Do you notice what the Gibeonites called Saul? The Lord's king. The king that the Lord chose. Now, it's understandable that the Gibeonites would, would refer to King Saul like that. But those of us who have followed the story in 1 and 2 Samuel will remember that Saul was not really God's choice. He was the people's choice. And the Lord's choice was David, was, was the king that came after Saul. But Saul was the king of Israel, and he was meant to represent God to these foreigners and they had been guaranteed safety in God's name by the nation and its rulers. And Saul had betrayed these people and killed many of them. And therefore, Saul had blackened God's name to these people. And he had made it seem like God couldn't be trusted. They had put their trust in God. These Gibeonites, these foreigners, pagans had put their trust in God's name. And they had been let down by God's chosen king. Do you see that? Saul, the chosen of the Lord. 
So this, this is immediately reminds us that we Christians, we bear Christ. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Christian, it has the name of Christ right in it. We bear Christ's name. And that means whenever we do wrong, we reflect Christ. We reflect on his reputation. We give Christ a bad name. When we lack integrity, it harms the gospel. And God takes his reputation very seriously, the reputation of Jesus Christ. Because, not because he's egocentric, because it's the only way for people to be saved if people put their trust in Jesus Christ. And if we are letting down Jesus Christ, we're actually preventing people from getting saved. What a serious thing it is to do, to create the wrong impression of God. And the sad truth is the church has often been guilty of the same nationalistic zeal and pride that Paul exhibits here. So because Saul had made these Gibeonites doubt God, God insisted that something had to be done. And he stopped the rains for three years, right? There was was famine, no blessing, no harvest until this was dealt with. And God was using this to get the attention of of Saul's successor, King David. And and David then took responsibility and he would reestablish the Gibeonites' confidence in God. There was three years of drought. And maybe if it had only been one year, David would have just put that down to the normal conditions. Some years you get a bad year. But after year by year, then David thought, I better inquire of the Lord as to what is going on. And it says David sought the face of the Lord. David understood something was seriously wrong. And this again is a good wee example to us. If we notice a drought in our families, in our churches, that lasts three years, I'm not sure, that lasts a bit of time. You know, so, like, of course, life has its ups and downs, doesn't it? There's times that are good, there's times that aren't. But if there's a dryness in our relationship with God, if there's a lack of fruit in our church for an extended time, especially if we're leaders in the family and in work and in, in, in church or whatever, then it's, it's quite a, a wise thing to follow what David does here, to seek the face of God, the face of the Lord. It is a good idea. If, this, if, if there's a drought that lasts longer than, than what would be expected in the normal course of life, we need to come before the Lord and ask him, is there something we need to deal with? Something maybe from the past, even something that was nothing to do with us, right? We weren't actually to blame for. You see, this is, a Christian is, is someone who is to bring peace and fruitfulness and blessing in all the areas in which God has given us especially responsibility, even for things that are not our fault. Now, it doesn't mean poking your nose into other business. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about whenever God brings things to our attention like he does here to David. We're not to go looking into other people's business. But when God brings a situation to our attention, when there's fractured relationships, it's all causing a lack of fruit, a lack of things, you know, good things that ought to be there, then sometimes he wants us to lead the people through that into peace again, right? With his help through the wisdom of God to bring reconciliation and healing even when we were not the cause. You know, it's we kids, isn't it? Whenever the, there's something on the ground and you say, pick that up there. We didn't do that, right? But the Christians are to be slightly more grown up than that, right? It's the odd time. So and it's hard. It's hard to be a peacemaker, isn't it? Whenever 
Whenever it's so easy to complain about your spouse, complain about your colleagues, complain about the church members, it's far harder, you know, to, to actually do something about that, to bring peace and harmony. Divisions just happen naturally. We're really good at divisions. We're, it's re- it takes a lot of work to bring peace and harmony, right? And this is what David has to do. He has to do the work to bring peace and harmony back to the land. And this wasn't David's fault. In fact, the writer is actually really careful to point out that David actually spared a man called Mephibosheth because of the oath of the Lord. Did you notice that as we read? He he actually kept an oath that he had made years before this with Saul's son, Jonathan. And this is showing us that in contrast to Saul, David is someone who is very careful to honor oaths and covenants made in the name of God. He takes them very seriously. David understood it was a very serious thing to break an oath made before God. And let all of us who are married here this evening remember that we made an oath before God. you remember on your wedding day? To be true to our spouse until the day we died. God takes that oath very seriously. So David had done no wrong, yet he had to sort out this mess that his predecessor had made. And in this, David starts to act like his great descendant, Jesus Christ. Because a thousand years after David, Jesus would be born in the line of David. And he would be born to take responsibility responsibility for a huge mess that he was not responsible for at all, (laughs) for the sins of all of his predecessors, and even ours, the people who come after him. He would take responsibility for the sins of the whole world. And and I'm just going to show you a prophet Isaiah. He, He lived 300 years after David. And he had seen many kings of Israel come and go, and some were good, like David, you know, sought to live with integrity, to keep their oaths, those kind of things. Some were not good, like Saul, right, who went, who who dishonored the name of God. Now, all the kings of Israel were meant to be God's servants. They were meant to be good kings who would rule in righteousness and justice, but often they dishonored God's name to the nations. And Isaiah had seen this happen time and time again. And one day, Isaiah predicted that God's true servant would come. Here in Isaiah 42, he says, behold, my servant. Isaiah is talking about a future king in the line of David who would, a chosen one. You see the way they called Saul the chosen of the Lord? This is the true, this is God's true choice who would come in the line of David. And in him, God would truly delight He would give him his spirit, and he would bring forth justice to the nations, not just to the Gibeonites, to everybody, right? Isaiah said there's going to come a true king, and he's going to bring justice to all the nations. At the very end of this passage, he will will be faithfully, he will bring forth justice. He will not grow faint. You see how he's going to persist, even though it was nothing to do with him, he didn't cause any of the problems, he is going to persist. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He's going to bring justice to the whole world. He's going to take responsibility for every wrong, every oppressed oppressed person, everything that has ever gone wrong. To make right all the the failures of his predecessors and of everybody who has ever lived, including us. 
And Isaiah went on to predict how he would do this, right? In the very famous chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah predicts that that perfect servant would be, would need to suffer oppression and, and injustice himself. He would be stricken for the transgressions of others. He would be treated like a criminal for crimes he did not do. Right? This is the only way that he would be able to bring justice. He would be treated as the one who did the crimes, even though he didn't do it. He, he would be numbered with the transgressors, treated like a criminal. He would bear the sin of many, and he would make intercession for the transgressors. And it's exactly the same solution here in this passage. Because in verse 3, David comes to the Gibeonites and says, What shall I do? How shall I make atonement? How will I bring you and us together again? At one that's the idea, to bring us back to one again, to bring us back to unity to make peace again in this fractured relationship between the Israelites, the Gibeonites, and God. How am I, how, what could David do to make it all right again, to bring peace back to the land? So David asked the Gibeonites what needed to be done, and notice their humble response. They knew they had no right to put anybody to death in Israel, but they also knew that money would not be adequate Many of the Gibeonites had been murdered. The only way justice could be done was by blood. Life for life. Nothing else was going to cut it. And Saul deserved to die for the crimes that he had done against these people. But Saul was already dead, so they needed representatives to die in his place. They asked for seven of his sons to be put to death and hung up before the Lord in Saul's hometown of Gibeah as representing Saul himself to show everyone on earth and in heaven that the man who did such a thing deserves to die. And this is the only way that adequate justice could be done and they would once again feel secure in Israel. And do you see that it was the same with us? In order to satisfy God's justice, Jesus Christ had to give his life and be hung up on a cross before the Lord. There could be no shortcuts. You watch Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane there on the ground in intense prayer with sweat like blood falling from his face, pleading with his Father to see if there is another way, yet there was no other way. And these representatives of King Saul were put to death and hung up on a mountain before the Lord. In Old Testament law, only those guilty of the most heinous crimes were hung up like that because it represented being cursed of God. That's what it meant to be hung on a tree in the Old Testament law. It meant you were cursed of God. And these seven men were killed under God's curse, not for their own crimes, but all because of the sins of their father, King Saul, the man who really deserved to die the death they were dying. You think of that picture. It's a horrendous, horrific picture. But come with me to another hill a thousand years later, and see another man hung up on a cross, cursed of God, though he had done no wrong, representing another who had done much wrong, me, and if you will have it, you. (laughs) That's why he was hung on that cross. 
That is a hard thing to accept, but that is what, that is what the truth of the gospel is. And, and we kind of, in our society, we feel this isn't fair. It isn't fair that these seven men were killed for what their father had done. Their father brought the curse upon their heads. Do you see it keeps saying Saul and his house? But the Bible says the same of us. You see, our ultimate father, if you trace it right back to the start, is a man called Adam, and he sinned and cursed the whole human race. Because of his crime, we are all condemned under the curse of God. This is what the Bible teaches. And we can think we're not too bad, but the Bible says there is something so deeply flawed in our human nature that we are doomed. Our, our human nature is under a curse. And now we may not have committed genocide, but we are made of the same stuff as Adam, as Saul, and just as Saul's sons were made of the same stuff as him. And deep down, we, we, we know this. We know we are all capable of very great evil in the wrong circumstances. Like, okay, I have never committed genocide, but who knows what I would be capable of capable of. If I was an ancient king with ultimate power, what would I do with that power? Who knows what we would do if we were in the wrong circumstances with great temptations? We are just as capable of heinous evil as Saul. And our problem is not so much in what we have done, it is who we are. That's the point. We have an existence in a human nature that is cursed of God. And the only, we have no hope unless we get out of that somehow. Now, we Christians, we love to sing of Jesus as our substitute, don't we? This is what this passage is all about. Jesus taking our place. And we sing songs of him on the cross, dying in our stead. There's loads of songs about Jesus being our substitute, our representative. And we rightly admit, you know, that on that cross, Jesus died in our place. You know what that means? That means I deserve that. That's a hard, do we, do we really believe that? I deserve that death. See, most of us think we're not too bad. You know, maybe we aren't the best, but that death. I deserve to die under the curse of God. See, the cross isn't just a, cross tells us many things, but one of the things that the cross tells us is that we are much more offensive to God than we like to think. It is hard to accept what the Bible says about us, but accepting it brings real security. And this story is pretty gruesome, and the cross was even, even more so. So do not be fooled by the fact that, that we now make the cross into this nice sparkly jewelry. The cross was murderous horror inflicted on a perfect innocent man. He was beaten, tortured, and hung on a tree, cursed before the Lord. And this is what Paul, Paul explains this to us in Galatians chapter 3. He explains it like this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So this comes back to our view of ourselves. We think we're not too bad. 
But our human nature is so deeply flawed that it is under God's curse. It is incapable of anything else. None of us can keep all the things written in the book of the law. We are not capable of living by God's standards. We have all come short, and we're all therefore under his curse. We all deserve to be hung up before the Lord because we've been born into this cursed humanity, just as these men were born into a cursed family. Do you see how relevant this is? This is not so far removed from where we are right here in Belfast. In 2023, we're in the same circumstance, born into the same condition as these seven men were born into. And it's hard for us to accept in our culture of individualism and autonomy, but the hard truth is that most of, uh, is that most of what we are, we haven't heard it. We are not self-created. We are children of our parents, and we have inherited the same human nature as everybody else, a nature that is deeply flawed, and is under the curse of God. And it will be destroyed. And us with it, unless we have an existence in a new nature. And thus, unless we can be freed from this humanity, and this humanity that is under the curse. And that's where Paul goes on here in Galatians to bring us really great news. He says, Christ has freed us, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ was hung on a cross, cursed by God to free us from the curse that hung over all of humanity. The cross not only shows us how bad we humans are. You know, Jesus Christ didn't die a horrendous death of violence and disgrace under the curse of God because we needed a helping hand. We were in far more trouble than we realized. And the cross shows us how, how much trouble we're in, but it also shows us the way out the way we can be freed from this humanity and join a new humanity, which is free from the curse of God forever. And you see, there was two things in the Old Testament that, that, that meant you were cursed of God. Number one, you had to be hung on a tree, right? Everyone who was cursed of God was to be hung on a tree. Only the most horrendous crimes was somebody killed and then hung on a tree. That was one thing. And then the other thing was when they were hung on a tree, they were to be just thrown on the open ground, they were not to be given an honorable burial. They were just thrown in the ground for the birds and the, 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 the beasts of the field to eat their body, which was a horrendous thing in the Old Testament, right? Those two things meant you were cursed of God. And these seven men, they died under the curse of God, and they were therefore not to be given a proper burial. Their bodies were to be thrown into the open field for the birds and the beasts. But something changed. Something happened that changed the ending. And the story moves from this gruesome scene to a heart-ratching scene as we watch Rizba, the mother of two of the boys, so devastated that she remains with the dead bodies of her two boys for many days and nights. Look. Then Rizba, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. 
So she chases away the birds and the beasts from their dead bodies. And eventually David hears about this. And he, it moves his heart in pity. And he decides to end the curse on these boys and give them an honorable burial. And it says they gathered the bones of those who were hanged and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And this is again pointing us to the Lord Jesus. Because he died under the curse of God, he was meant to be thrown into an open pit with all the other criminals. But as you know, God intervened to stop that, right? He said, I'm not having my son thrown into the, a pit with the criminals just by the Roman army. And he moved two rich men, if you know the story, one called Joseph of Arimathea, the other called Nicodemus. He moved two men to, to take, one of them took his own tomb and he, he gave Jesus an honorable burial of costing thousands of pounds of spices and ointments and all these things. And you see what God was saying. God, at that point, God stopped the curse and said, the curse is over. <laughs> My son has borne the curse. And now it's spices. <laughs> well, that was just the start. He was, he was showing that there is a future to humanity, a new human race beyond the curse forever. So the cross not only shows us just how sinful we are in our old nature, but the resurrection shows us how perfect the new humanity is. Because God intervened to, to vindicate his son. He insisted in an honorable burial. Then he raised him from the dead, and he exalted him to heaven. And, and the cross shows us how sinful we are, and the resurrection shows us how free we are in the new humanity in Jesus Christ. God has raised a, a human being to glory, a real human being. So all humans are not cursed because there's one is in the right hand of heaven just now, a real human being. And Jesus has created a new humanity beyond the curse of God. He has rose again as a human and we humans can now be free from the curse forever. In Christ, God's justice has been forever satisfied. God has accepted the sacrifice of our substitute and vindicated him and raised him from the dead. Do you see how this is relevant to us? This story is all about these outsiders, the Gibeonites, finding a safe and secure place in the inheritance of Israel through the actions of a true and loyal king. And notice it was only whenever the king did all that, whenever they performed all that the king commanded, then God responded in blessing. And this is just like us. We're the outsiders. We're the Gibeonites, the Gentiles, who have no rights in the blessings of Abraham. Did you notice that in Galatians 3? How do we have any part in all of these promises to Abraham and everything else? How do we find a secure place in the promises of God? Well, God wants us to be secure. He, he was insistent that these outsiders were restored to their secure position in Israel before he blessed the Israelites and the Gibeonites with the rains and the harvest. And in the same way, God wants us to be absolutely secure in our inheritance, which is so much greater than a bit of land in Israel. Our inheritance is a, is a part in the future humanity a place in the new human race begun in the resurrection of Jesus 
which is beyond the curse of God, which will live forever. Now, you imagine the torture if we are resurrected and we are insecure in that inheritance. If we're resurrected in a perfect body, in a perfect paradise, and we can't be sure that the king that God has put to reign over us won't turn against us, won't betray us like Saul betrayed the Gibeonites. So this story shows us where our true security comes from. These Gibeonites were restored to perfect security in the land whenever they saw the true King David take responsibility for the wrong that was done to them. And whenever we come to the cross, we see our King, the true chosen of the Lord, take responsibility for our sins, for all sins, for all the failures, bear them himself. And through this ancient story, we can see that whenever we put our trust and faith in the true King of Israel, Jesus Christ, who came to secure all the promises to Abraham, for the Jews as well as the Gentiles, to came by bringing the curse upon himself. He has secured the blessing for us all, and he will never betray us because he is the very one who died under God's curse in order to save us. So this brings us down to how we can be secure in the future that God has for us beyond the curse, in the new humanity that Jesus Christ has begun in the resurrection. This is how we know that we are secure and eternally secure in God's kingdom. Because the king, even though he had done no wrong, he has taken responsibility for all of our, all of humanity's sins, including our own. There is nothing you have done or could do, you know, that he is not willing to take full responsibility for if you put your trust in him. And when he took responsibility, he took the full curse under, uh, upon himself. You see, we can sometimes feel that God may turn his back on us if he knew what we were really like. The cross shows us that God knows us more than we th know ourselves, that we are far worse than we would like to think. The cross shows us that it's not even what we have done that is the greatest problem. It is who we are is the real problem. We are so deeply flawed that we're under God's curse. But it also shows us the solution that he was made to bear the curse for us. And the resurrection shows us that the cross has made atonement, has brought us and God back together. He has entreated the Lord. He has, he has brought the blessing back onto humanity. He has restored God's blessing on the human race once again, a new human race that Jesus has begun when he rose from the dead, a human race that will live with him forever, free from the curse of God. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the curse is over. We are made secure in the kingdom. Just as the Gibeonites were made secure again in the land. And we know our king will never turn against us. He is the very one who took the curse on himself to save us. And he has promised this. And unlike Saul, he will never go back on his oath. Let us give him thanks. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for the true king who has come to take full responsibility for all of the sins of the world. It amazes us. Lord, we do find these things hard to accept. We, we find it hard to accept that we are as deeply flawed as your word says that we are, that this human race is doomed, is under the curse of God, and will one day be wiped out. 
Lord, help us to accept that. I mean, really accept it. To really see our true condition. Because whenever we see that, then we will take a hold of the solution. We will, we will come to the cross and we will look up and see a man hung up between heaven and earth bearing the curse for us. Lord, we would never even dream of saying that about your son if Galatians did not say it. And yet, if he had to do that, if he had to bear the curse for us, it must have meant that we deserve it. Lord, help us to receive that and help us to see, receive the solution as well. We thank you that you changed the end of the story. That Jesus Christ wasn't just thrown into a pit to be forgotten forever. He was buried in a tomb so that that tomb would be found empty. <laughs> that, that he would be declared risen from the dead by earth and by heaven itself. And that he would ascend to the throne of the Father as a human being to show us that there is a new humanity that is found in it with a new king who will never let us down. Lord, help each of us here to, to have less trust in ourselves, to realize just the depravity of our own human nature, and instead to put our full trust in our true king, Jesus Christ, who will never let us down, who has bore the curse for us, who has risen from the dead, and who will bring us to the blessing of the new human race forever and ever. We offer our thanks for him in his name. Amen.